G'day, and welcome to My Favourite Album. I'm journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon, and each episode I'll be talking to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. My guest today is a journalist and author. From founding the blog Tiger Beatdown to writing for In These Times, Rookie, L, The Guardian, The Atlantic, and BuzzFeed, to her excellent 2016 tome, Trainwreck. The women we love to hate, mock and fear, and why. A book so good I bought it twice. Although that was mainly because I left my first copy on an airplane by accident when I was horribly jet-lagged flying from LA to Australia. Sadie Doyle, welcome to my favourite album. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So this is normally the point in the show where I would ask my guests what their favorite album is. But first, I just want to talk briefly about you've ignited a Twitter controversy in the last few weeks by making what, to me, doesn't sound like a particularly inflammatory statement, but is really like set some people off. So can you just tell the listeners what you asserted and what the reaction has been? Um, first of all, I need to clarify that this was not an assertion, it was a question. And I said, is it possible that the greatest American rock band was R.E.M.? Question mark. And I think every adult man who's ever bought a record tweeted at me to tell me <laughs> how I was wrong. Well, actually. Yeah. So I had I had the Concerned Dads of America very <laughs> upset about this statement slash question of mine. Lots of people chimed in and were very supportive of R.E.M. as a good pick because, you know, they had a good long run. They had a lot of songs that connected with the culture in a huge way. They had their craftsman-like ethos and that huge impact on indie rock. I thought it was an okay pick. Nobody who would not pick R.E.M. thought it was an okay pick. They were all very, very intense about it being Fugazi or it being uh, Sly on the Family Stone or it being Credence. A lot of people really, really felt that it was Credence. Really? So, I don't, you know, like that, the appeal is lost on me. And I think that it's just that I can sort of get into the 80s. I was alive at the time, but I had very poor taste because I was a toddler. But I can sort of revisit the 80s. But like processing the 70s is something I'm very bad at. I don't fully like it's a little bit before my time. But people felt strongly about Cretans. And they also felt strongly about Funkadelic. And, you know, these are all good answers that I wish people would, like, not yell at me quite so intensely as they do. One guy, I think, tweeted that he was going to flush his phone down the toilet after reading <laughs> the tweet. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, all, all right. Whatever you think is going to help. That feels a bit like those people who were throwing their Keurig machines out the window after they stopped sponsoring Sean Hannity's show or whoever it was. It's like the only person getting hurt in this scenario is the person throwing away their own electronics. Yeah, it felt like a lot of people had cathected a lot of personal identity into their choice of the greatest band. I mean, I think that it just is. It's one of those things where I don't fully understand it because I'm not a guy and I always like I was always encouraged in the other direction to not talk about music and particularly rock music because it wasn't for me. 
I did get a member of REM into a Twitter fight, though. So I felt good about that. Oh, which um, one? Was it Mike Mills? He's it was pretty Mike active. Mills. Yes. <laughs> I was just following all of this. I don't know why you follow all of this when there's like a Twitter storm around you. I think it's just like a need to understand the chaos that you brought. Yeah. But I just saw him shouting at someone like, the band is not the best American band. They're Canadian. Like, okay. <laughs> I've now entangled actual members of REM in this Twitter fight about REM. So I think that, you know, this has gone as far as it can go. The thing that really baffled me about how virulent some of the reaction at you was is that I don't feel like best ever American rock band is like something where there's a conventionally accepted answer enough for it to be like sacrilegious for it to not be them. Like if you were saying best American songwriter and you chose someone who wasn't Bob Dylan, for example, I could imagine like there's just a certain level of rock cognoscente who would be like horribly offended by that. But like, I don't know, I thought people generally liked R.E.M., I thought that were generally like a highly regarded band. I think it's the idea of the greatest. Like you are handing down some idea about greatness when you make that claim. I also think that, yeah, a lot of American music that we would sort of acknowledge to be great by greatness, I guess my personal definition is that it doesn't matter if this is for you or not. It doesn't matter if it necessarily speaks to you on a personal level. You acknowledge that it is massive in the culture and that it had impact and that it matters. So... I mean, solo artists like that, you would have to say that about Bruce Springsteen, right? You would have to say that about Prince. Yeah. We have, like, a canonical list of those guys, and they are, unfortunately, you know, just because rock in particular has always been characterized as sort of hyper-masculine. It's mostly men that people can agree on. But we have that list of great solo artists. Bands, it's harder. And it is more personal. And it really depends on, like, if you are more of a cheese guy, you might go for Aerosmith. And if you are, apparently, I'm very boring. I'm neither neither <laughs> super punk nor super populist. I just went for REM because they kept their heads down and they did their work, damn it. You know, um, it really, it says something about you and I think that's why people got so intense about it. A lot of it was really fun. Like a lot of people engaged in good faith and were enjoying the attempt to define greatness. But yeah, it gets really personal because it does tell you something about what the person you're speaking to sees as great. It's a big title and it's a big claim to hand down about anybody or anything. Yeah, and apparently it's even just a big question to ask without even making necessarily the claim. Right, yeah. Let's wrap up our pre-discussion digression on your latest Twitter controversy and move on to the subject of the episode. And I will ask my regular first question of a guest to you now, which is Sadie. It's normally not Sadie, but you know what I mean. What is your favorite album? It's actually, it's not an R.E.M. album. My favorite album is Boys for Paley by Tori Amos. So I got me some horses to ride on, to ride on. 
So this record came out in 1996. It's 22 years old now. Tell me about how this album first came into your life and how Tori Amos first came into your life, whichever was first. It came, you know, she came into my life with this album and I have just such this really sad prototypical tale of getting into Tori Amos, which is that I was being picked on a lot at school and I was going through a rough time. And one of my mother's co-workers gave her a copy of Spin with Tori Amos on the cover and was like, I think this woman would really speak to your daughter and what she's going through. Because, you know, I had been a really gifted little kid and that very quickly turns into being a nerd. You know, the the second you're a teenager, none of that is really, you know, it doesn't really play that you know a lot of long words or that you really, you know, love to watch the news. So, you know, Tori Amos had that backstory where she had been a child piano prodigy and she got kicked out of her conservatory and was wandering in the wilderness making, you know, like pop metal albums in LA in the 80s and then finally found her voice and turned into this very cool person. And I think people were sort of trying to get me to identify myself with that ugly duckling tale, which I did to an extent that was like alarming and maybe more intense than anyone predicted. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember, you said there was a spin article Do you remember what the tone of that article was or what attitude they were taking towards Tori Amos? Because a lot of her press coverage, I think, especially throughout that period and I guess like even up through today, especially the stuff that was written by guys, is quite, I don't know if patronizing is the right word, but it sort of, it was very like otherizing of her and of the qualities of her music. Absolutely, yeah. I got really lucky because this was like, The 1996 Spin cover story was the most 90s girl thing ever. It was written by Francesca Leah Block, who wrote the Wheatsy Bat books. And, you know, my eyes are wide and I'm like, you get it right. And you don't because you weren't a teenage girl in 1996. But it was very much just like she spells fairies with an A-E and she seems like a fairy queen herself. And she writes about how she did ayahuasca and had sex with the devil. And like all of this is just amazing if you're 14 because it's, you know, it's sort of like a Disney movie, but there's also just like her getting super high and having sex with Satan. It's everything you want at the same time. So it was really admiring. I think it did portray her in a way that she was often portrayed at the time as this very sort of twee, new agey, precious princess figure. It wasn't However, like a lot of her coverage where it just I've written, I think, a couple of articles on her early press coverage where it was just not at all uncommon for the person interviewing her to straight up call her crazy. I think one article from like 1992 said she had like mad grinning eyes and an uncooked sausage pallor and just would write about her in these very intense otherizing. This is a crazy chick who can't control herself and is just gushing out all of her feelings at the piano. Very stereotypical thing. It was almost like she was Rock's crazy ex-girlfriend for a while, that she was portrayed as sort of emotionally incontinent and out of touch with reality and all of these other things because people didn't really want to engage with the very tough subjects she was taking on in her work and was taking on at a time when it was simply not really discussed. I still don't 
think I know anybody who has like a concept album about their miscarriage other than Tori Amos. You know, uh, me and a gun, we right now have the benefit of several dozen years, it feels like, of feminist activism, some of which was done by Tori Amos herself. We have the benefit of the whole 2000s and the 2010s talking about rape culture, talking about sexual assault. We now currently have the flowering of all that work in the Me Too movement. At the time, she was just a woman who turned off all of the instruments and made you sit there and listen to her sing about her own rape in very, very intense detail. And she did this at the end of every show for, I think, her first two tours. People definitely wanted and needed her to be crazy because otherwise the intensity of what she was bringing to bear would have required them to really rethink a lot of the things that they believed about the world. And there's, I, I think, something I've people I know who are big Tori Amos fans have said to me and something I've sort of observed in a lot of Tori Amos fans, and it feels like this is relevant to what you were just saying in a way, is that it seems like her music and probably her concerts too were kind of the original safe space because she sang about such confronting subject matter and she was so transparent about the experiences that she's had, that she's been through, that she's survived in her life, that there's some kind of catharsis that people who have had similar experiences or just experiences that have made them feel traumatized or feel in a similar way can come to her music or come to her shows and feel understood in some manner. Absolutely. And there, you know, have been studies done on her fan base, on why people come to her shows and a ton of, of the fans who have responded in surveys about this kind of thing have said, yeah, I'm coming because I was sexually assaulted and this is a space where that experience is given some kind of value. I think she also had a really intense following among young queer men and I'm, I'm neither queer nor male and I can't presume to speak to that experience, but I think the fact that she wrote so extensively about sexuality and religion and shame and reclaiming your sense of self from being shamed and being told you were not enough. I think that that was a really valuable space that often didn't exist elsewhere in the culture. It wasn't always so conscious and political, you know. When I went to Lilith Fair, I had a sense of, oh, I'm supporting female artists. If you went to see Ani DeFranco, you were there to like rage against the man-sheen and the patriarchy. But if you went to Tori Amos, you were going to the show so you could cry. <laughs> you know? Like it was just, it was about that. And it still is about that. To this day, I see her on every tour and I'm always like, oh, here come the waterworks. It was about being in a place where because she was so emotionally open and so emotionally accessible, sometimes about stuff that just you couldn't really talk about over coffee with your boss, you know, you couldn't really just go into some of these experiences in public, but you could let her go through them in the room with you. It was a place where you could sort of dredge up all of your crap and go through it. And Boys for Paley was really that to me. It is one of her longest records, certainly her longest early record. It is very strange. It does not really sound like anything, and it didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard, and it still doesn't. And it's very 
intensely emotional. It has some of her most raw performances, some of her most raw songwriting, and it just felt, especially when you are a 14-year-old kid and you don't have a lot of people that you talk to regularly, it felt really unusual and powerful and freeing to just sort of walk into this alternate universe of the record where it was just a woman having feelings that not always pleasant ones for, you know, 70 minutes. And it was okay. Blood roses, blood roses, back on the street now. Blood roses, blood roses, back on the street now. Can't forget the things you never said on days like these. Starts me thinking. Chickens get a taste, your meat. Chickens get a taste, your meat. Yes. I think that she has really, really intense fan base. And it really is like people follow her around like she's fish or something. Like there are people who go to every show on the tour, I think, to this day and have been going now for decades. But people experience that call to get maybe too into Tori Amos. I'm not judging, but more into (laughs) Tori Amos than like, I don't see anybody just like going to every Bumford and Sons concert for 20 years. Like that's not going to happen. But there are people who followed dreams around since the early 90s, and it's like, that's their lifestyle. That call is something that you only get when there is a place you can reach at those shows that you can't reach elsewhere in the culture. And it was really just about this radical and revolutionary and very quiet assertion that maybe you didn't feel great right now, and maybe that was okay, too. Maybe, you know, you just really having a bad day was in and of itself an epic subject and deserving of, you know, a fairly epic and intense and even one might say melodramatic treatment. I remember I had my dad back in 1996 tape her MTV Unplugged for me. And he was so scathing about it. He was like, dear God, it's supposed to be rock and roll. It's not Hamlet. Why is she so upset? It's <laughs> <laughs> just like, well, but dad, it could be Hamlet. It sort of is Hamlet. Hamlet is just a guy who's upset about his mother getting remarried and he wears black and talks about his feelings for four hours. I can't make why a decision about anything. <laughs> yeah, like, why can't we, why can't she, you know, have her to be or not to be moment? Why can't she have, you know, Hamlet with a harpsichord and a piano and lyrics that might not necessarily make the most linear sense, but by God, when she sings them, you sort of know what that's like. Um, <laughs> it was that. It was sort of the girl Hamlet. It was the idea that your emotions maybe felt big because they were big, because you mattered and it was okay for you to be sad. That's such a sort of saccharine way to talk about an artist who I really like on a musical level because I think she is a wonderful player. I think she is a really strong writer. 
I think that when women deal with intense and personal and emotional subjects, we have a tendency to see it as just them glopping out their feelings onto the stage. Almost like, oh, she can't control herself and she's just writing her diary for us right now. She's having a meltdown. She's having a breakdown. She's, you know, whatever sort of vaguely pathologizing terms you want to use for a woman who's having an emotion in public. But I remember an interview quote from her and the actual language that stuck out to me was she said something like, well, when you have a woman who's coming out of a church and screaming and crying, you don't try to tone that down. That wasn't her talking about her performance. That was her talking about the precise level of compression she wanted on the vocal during Blood Roses. Like every part of that album, which she produced herself, which was rare for a woman and is still rare, was something that she fussed with and worked on. There are a lot of really smart sort of intertextual to get unnecessarily women's studies studenty, but intertextual references. There is When the Levy Breaks is under her song Professional Widow, which is one of the best songs on that album. And it's also, it's under uh, Beyonce's Don't Hurt Yourself. That makes me very happy that there's the same sort of quotation of the rhythm section in both of those songs. There's a big old chunk of Purple Rain in Hey Jupiter, and she's not stealing this stuff. She's asking you to think about how her songs are talking to other songs, which is something that she does a lot of. There's a ton of just musical history in there. There's a lot of Baroque music and classical music up front, especially in something like Blood Roses, and then she sort of moves into the south which is like her mythic place that's the final act of the album and it is it's an album with acts it's a theater piece and if that doesn't work for you in an album you know then it's not going to work for you here but there's you know a lot of quotations of different genres there's a lot going on here that's really smart she didn't just have a bad day and sit down and like blurt out boys for pele it was something that was very carefully put together to give the impression of seeming effortless and spontaneous. And I really appreciate that because if you are not socialized to honor what your inner reality is, then the idea of saying it at all can feel very taboo. The idea of writing this you know, sort of pseudo-classical song cycle and putting actual thought into how it's assembled and giving it, you know, three acts. I think in that spin cover story, she said that it's got 14 songs to represent the 14 body parts of Osiris that had to be assembled after he was killed. That is a woman taking herself very, very seriously. And we don't get 
women taking themselves very, very seriously. There's an ongoing debate in literature about why women don't write, quote unquote, big books. You know, why isn't there a lady David Foster Wallace where you write this giant book and it's clearly at the cutting edge of what literature is supposed to be and it's experimental and it's a demonstration of your ability to take up space because that's what men get to do as artists. They get to take up space. And Boys for Pele, a giant album that is ultimately about something that we might dismiss as trivial. It's really just about her breaking up with a guy she'd been with for a while. Her spinning that into this epic thing about the death of Osiris and a woman's journey into the subconscious and beginning with her disintegrated psyche and descending into the South as into the underworld to that is a woman taking up space. It is an album that does not appear to have been constructed with any reference to any music that was remotely possible at the time, except for maybe one bit where she pretty clearly seems to be saying that she doesn't like Trent Reznor. You know, she she mentions <laughs> one of his albums. And that way you're like, oh, okay, she has listened to music in the past 200 years. But it is 100% someone taking on the mantle of a rock star and an artist with a capital A. It is experimental and it is big and it demands that you engage with it on its terms and not as, you know, this is not an album that you're just going to put in your CD player and hit shuffle and wait for the singles to come up. You know, it's still not to this day. I listen to Tori Amos more than most people, and I still have to, like, enter a specific psychological space before I'm ready to deal with Boys for Pele because you have to sit down and listen to it. And that's just, it's not something women are supposed to do. It's not something they're allowed to do. It's not something they're encouraged to do. And this album was really savaged critically. It got just some of the worst reviews of her career, maybe because she was just in that space where artists get to where she was popular enough that there needed to be a backlash, but she had always gotten sort of condescending reviews. This album got reviews that were mean. And it was after this album that she started behaving a little bit more like a contemporary musician in the 1990s was supposed to. Like she started incorporating electronica into her music and she started touring with a band and not just hauling, you know, this ancient harpsichord out on stage and making you watch her play it for a while. It really marked the furthest point out from popular music that she was ever going to go. Afterwards, she was always more noticeably in dialogue with popular music. She was making music that you know had a beat and that you could tour with a band and that had maybe more conventional structures and more contemporary reference it was still very much hers and the next album she made from the choir girl hotel is also a fan favorite and is you know one of her best albums she can do that stuff and still be weird and still be her but Boys for Paley was just this moment where she was kind of completely operating out of her own internalized vision of what music could potentially sound like. And it is so bizarre and it has aged so well. Nothing about this album should work on paper, 
you know, where it's like, well, there's going to be like this weird pseudo Baroque opening where I sing about vampires and genital mutilation. And then I'm going to sort of transition into more of like a jazzier sound. There's going to be horns on the album. And then I'm going to like, I don't know, maybe put in, you know, like a sample of bull and the bull's poop being shoveled. And I'm going to yell about heroin for a while. But then, you know, maybe we'll do some dance beats with the harpsichord. Who knows? It just, it should not work. It sounds like a 30 car pileup. Everything about this album, when you describe it to somebody, as sooner or later, eventually you get into the point where it's like, well, it begins with her playing one note over and over on the piano and humming about beauty standards. And then she begins to descend into her unconscious where she meets the devil. And <laughs> then she tells the guy to kill himself. It really, it's such a, ferociously strange album it stands so completely on its own and yet because it does that it takes parts of female experience and female interiority seriously it gives them a sort of a mythic stature sylvia plath has also been made fun of a lot as sort of a thing for moody emo girls but i think of sylvia plath a lot with this album because Ariel was often so much about creating these alien and sort of horror movie surreal landscapes out of something very domestic. Viciousness in the kitchen, the potatoes hiss, you know, you've stuck your kittens in a concrete well where they scream and puke and cry and she can't hear. That's really just, it's just two women in a kitchen having a sort of unpleasant conversation and yet it's threatening and terrible in ways that only nightmares are and a lot of this album is like that she doesn't need to talk about vampires and genital mutilation on blood roses to talk about the fact that she felt that she was with a guy and he emotionally crapped on her a lot and she didn't necessarily feel great about the sexual equality in that exchange. That's what I think this song is about. But the way it plays out is giant and formidable. Don't take me back to the range. Back to the range. I'm just coming out of the cell in my brain. Don't take me back to I'm trying to think. I think Little Amsterdam is a song that specifically she's said has a bit of Sylvia Plath in it. And it's really hard to trace, you know, where this fits into the album because it's just this very strange, isolated parable about a girl who's not allowed to leave the stove and who is locked in a cell in her mind and her mother slept with a man of color and someone's dead and nobody's really sure who killed them. You don't even know who's dead. But that is put in there, I think, on some level as a way of dramatizing the sense of danger, of belonging to forces outside of yourself that comes along with female sexuality, which she's talking about on the album. The cover 
image is sort of famously based around a still from Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter, which she's referenced like a lot throughout her work. And you watch the movie and you can see why, because it's just a very strange, not at all realistic movie about the Deep South and about Christianity. And if you've never seen it, it's just this serial killer who deeply hates women and believes himself to be and convinces other people that he is a preacher. And he, you know, seduces these children's mother and then he kills her and then they have to go on the run and they eventually end up with a woman who genuinely is godly, I suppose. And she's played by Lillian Gish. And that cover image of Amos in the rocker holding a rifle is is a really direct recreation of Lillian Gish protecting these children from that predator. And that's something that is woven into this album on the level of structure and on the level of tone, that this is, it's honestly just a breakup album. It is about the fact that she's leaving something and it wasn't good for her and she feels like crap and she has to go through everything she's learned about relationships and eventually integrate what she's learned and decide that she's over the relationship and then she's fine that does not need to be replayed as night of the hunter with her going on a hidden river into the subconscious and emerging with the fire of the stars within her because at some point that's where she ends up <laughs> and i if i recite these lyrics without being Tori amos and without singing them they don't really make a lot of linear sense but it is a courageous act, I think, to dramatize your own inner life as something gigantic and mythic and worthy of grappling with. And that is something that many of her fans did not necessarily go on to do in their own lives, but they got from her, I think, that willingness to accept themselves and their own experiences as important. There's something that I was thinking about then while you were alluding to some of the narrative or concept album elements of this record. And part of me is wondering whether you could think about it as kind of an answer to, and I don't, I don't think it was probably intended like this, but most of the sort of iconic concept albums were made by dudes or dudes in rock bands in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And so much about this record or what she did with this record or about her generally, if you stripped away who she is, like if you just wrote those qualities down in a sort of non, in a way where there wasn't like an interpretation being put on them, it would seem like all the descriptors of some great classic rock artist, you know, like the obsession with different types of mythology and the sort of taking your internal emotional experiences and, and turning them into sort of high drama in the context of songs and all this kind of stuff is exactly what, to different degrees and about different kinds of experiences, but that's exactly what Bruce Springsteen did. In some ways, it's what Led Zeppelin did and all these different kinds of artists. But when they did it, it was received completely differently. Whereas I get the impression when this record came out, there was a fair bit of who the fuck do you think you are around the reaction to it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's because it is, you know, those big albums and those big books they are coded as masculine because i mean not to get too literal about it but it's about who's the biggest you know who has the longest book <laughs> and <laughs> it was something that she took on herself 
And she said that the record label did not like the album. The press did not like the album. I have heard recordings of her on this tour crying when she talked about how people received this album and saying, this is the song that I play because it reminds me that my album's not a piece of crap. And it wasn't. I would argue, I mean, I know this started with how do you define greatest, but there are a ton of records by Tori Amos that I really love. This is her capital G greatest record. This is her infinite jest, double album, prog rock, big book, this is what I can do, look at me, check me out album. It isn't something that we have room for in the culture, for a woman to claim that kind of space for herself. Women, femininity, that's constructed not primarily around expressing yourself, it is constructed around reflecting others, serving others, pleasing others, being there for others. So when a guy, or a bunch of guys, a rock band, let's say Led Zeppelin, she likes them a lot, when they do that, or when the Beatles release the White Album, or Sgt. Pepper, some audacious statement, that is them saying, look at us, we are craftsmen, we are artists. That's the origin of the term masterpiece, right? It's that you would put something together and it would display all the different techniques you had learned, and once you had that out in the world, you would deserve to be called a master of the craft. Men make masterpieces. Tori Amos makes what I would call her masterpiece in the sense of like, this is everything she can do on one album. And that is seen, whether consciously or unconsciously, as claiming a masculine prerogative for herself, putting something out into the world, not to make you happy, not to be like fun, easy listening at a picnic or at a dance party, but to take you by the shoulders and sit you down and make you have what's in some ways, kind of a bad time over the next hour and a half. <laughs> You're gonna cry and she's gonna make you. It's not something that people were ready for. I have to put in a plug for a book that is not my own. The 33 and a half book on this album is coming out and it's by a really wonderful writer named Amy Gentry. And I think she talks a lot about women even feminist women having just a bad reaction to this album. The Rolling Stone review of this album is brutal. And it's by a woman, it's by a feminist woman. And it just says, well, why can't she rock? Why can't she make rock music? Why is this so twee and so girly? You know, women themselves were made really uncomfortable by this specific space that Tori Amos took up because someone like, you know, I want to name someone else that I really love so that there's no shade here, PJ Harvey, who I think is sort of invoked in that Rolling Stone review, or Babes in Toyland, Cap Yellen. That kind of very heavy, guitar-focused, tough music that rocks, Slater Kinney maybe even, that's something that's a little bit easier for us to understand for other women to understand as a feminist statement because it is adhering to masculine norms, taking up masculine space in a way that's easier to process, I would say. I would never deny the musical adventurousness of PJ Harvey. To this day, she's making albums that are just radically different from anything that you would have heard from her in the 90s, and they all kind of work. But 
to be a woman with a guitar in front of a band yelling is saying, I can play on your turf. It's saying, I can be angry too. To play one note on a piano over and over while whispering about how you don't feel pretty is somehow very feminine in a way that we're taught to devalue. But it's oddly transgressive at the same time because it's like, well, yeah, it's pretty feminine to have that feeling. The way she performs, you know, is very pretty and girly and she has sort of a high soprano voice that she uses in a very classically beautiful way. But one of the conditions of having that feeling for a person with Torianus's specific gender performance is that you're not supposed to talk about it. You're supposed to just go into a corner of the bathroom and cry alone about how you don't feel pretty and not take up that much space. And that was something that she refused to do. She made you get very close to something that was uncomfortably intimate and very feminine. And yet the way in which she insisted on its importance and its grandeur and made you sit down and pay attention to it was a prerogative that we had only accorded to male artists. So I think there was just, there was a little bit of gender panic from men and women alike. <laughs> Nobody really knew what this was supposed to be. Well, tell me about seeing Tori live. When was your first Tori Amos gig? How old were you? Oh, I missed her on the 1996 tour because I was only 14. I was too young and I would have had to go with a parent. And my mom didn't like that she said bad things about Christianity. And my dad didn't like that she was so emotional. I've read the set list for that show. She played a Bruce Springsteen song. My dad was a Springsteen guy. I could have really stuck it to him. But Which was it, I'm on fire? Yep. Yep. <laughs> but I wound up going to a few shows in 98. So I missed that first phase of her career where she did everything, you know, either solo or with the guitar she toured with on the Boys for Pele tour of Steve Caton. So I missed that. But that 98 lineup was really good and was sort of her doing the I am in a rock band thing in a way that was still incredibly, incredibly strange. So, yeah. Oh, I do have a story about seeing her live. I saw her in 1998 in Columbus. And it's if you're a big old nerd about Tori Amos, that's regarded as one of her best shows ever. And I was 16 and excitable. And for some reason, I got into my head that I needed to scream really loud so that Tori really knew I was into it. <laughs> and um, on her live album, I've heard the bootleg of that show and I've heard her live album, which has the little earthquakes from that show on it. I can now hear my own scream at the beginning of Little Earth. Quakes. Oh my god, that's amazing. <laughs> it's really, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not great, but it's like, well, there I am. I'm in this history now. If you have ever listened to That Little Earthquakes and wondered who the hell that woman is, that's me. <laughs> Mystery, so you're probably a minor celebrity yeah. just within the Tori Amos fan community based on that. Oh, who knows? Maybe I am now. I've never come out about my identity. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, I've never told that story before. I just, it was just for you, Jeremy. Oh, well, I appreciate the exclusive. 
So one thing I wanted to talk about, and I know you've written about this a couple of times before, is sort of the unheralded influence that she's had on subsequent generations of performers. Because we're now 20 plus years into her career, so that's more than enough time for many other artists who have come up since to have been shaped in their formative years by listening to her records or seeing her performances. But I don't feel like she gets talked about much as an influence on people. No, right? Because there are other names that you can cite that I think are influences on Seremus as well. Like people are like, well, this seems like it has a little bit of Kate Bush in it. It seems like it has a little bit of Stevie Nicks in it. You know, there. But Tori Amos specifically was a very, very big part of music in the 90s. And afterward, just because it was very much about young gay men, young women who were seen as, you know, intense and over-emotional. It was about people that we don't like to talk about, and because her fans were seen as sort of square, there were a lot of theater kids at those shows, that influence got disowned. But we've since had a lot of people come out and say very specifically, like, no, I listen to this, this is part of what I do. Owen Pallet is a musician where you can definitely hear Tori Amos in there. Juliana Barwick is a big Tori Amos fan, and I listen to Juliana Barwick all the time and didn't really think about the connection, but a lot of what she does with layering these very pretty ethereal vocals is something you can find in some Tori Amos tracks. There's an acapella piece called The Pool that sounds like it could come from a Juliana Barwick album. I think EMA has talked a little bit about Tori Amos, and I love EMA, but just more generally, I think that the space she took up in the culture, the idea of this hyper-personal, intimate, confessional style is something that you can see, not just in people that overtly claim her music, you can see it in some Lady Gaga performances. I remember watching one Lady Gaga performance where she was not only sort of sitting splay-legged at the piano, at one point the piano was both in a glass box and on fire, and those are both very specifically images from Boys for Pele. And it was just like, well, dear God, I guess somebody watched those videos. Taylor Swift has done performances where she enters an Amosy vein and even sort of mimics some of the staging and the body language that Amos was famous for. There is so much of her threaded through the culture. Bat for Lashes. I think Bat for Lashes and Tasha Khan would probably name a lot of people other than Tori Amos. There's a lot of Bjork in her. There's a lot of Stevie Nicks in her. But I will be damned if some Bat for Lashes songs don't just sound like, you know, hey, I was a Tori Amos kid. Here's, here's my feelings. So yeah, she really opened up a space for women in the culture in a way that not only resulted in a lot of signings at the time, and I think, you know, of those signings, only Fiona Apples really stuck around and had sort of the same staying power and the same imperishability as an artist, but has sort of seeped into the culture as, okay, here is one way you can present yourself as a woman. Tori Amos no longer sounds so strange. Just the fact of her instrument, the fact that she played a piano rather than the guitar, you cannot explain to anyone younger than I am how weird that seemed because now the girls, they play piano. But she absolutely claimed a version of herself that then opened up a lot more space for what women could write about, how they could perform, what they could perform, who they could be. 
And there was also something you tweeted um, last year, I think it was, which was between Rider in the Dark and all the piano and the new Lana Del Rey record. It's a big summer for Tori Amosi pop albums. Yes. Other people than me have noticed the Lord connection and they were signed by the same guy. But the Lord connection is very there. There's a lot of very Tori Amosi stuff in Lana Del Rey. I think that Lana Del Rey sort of takes it to a purposefully uncanny place (laughs) where like her sad girl is definitely a lot less raw and a lot less Using words like authentic always gets you in trouble, but Toriyama's worked very, very hard to seem as if she was having a spontaneous thought in front of you. Lana Del Rey keeps her guard up and makes sure that you always know you're seeing a performance. There have been endless debates about who this woman actually is and how much she means the things she's singing and how much she wants you to think she means them. She's not a very direct artist at all. There's always a lot of irony and theatricality behind her work, but... A lot of what she does in terms of like the sad piano ballad and the big strings, that's 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 a Tori Amos thing. And Lord, I don't necessarily listen to something like Greenlight. I don't even necessarily listen to something like Royals and go, oh, that's a Tori Amos thing. But there is definitely a moment on that album and it's Writer in the Dark where she's playing piano and doing weird yowling things with her voice and you're meant to like be 100% with her having her emotional moment and that's that's a Tori Amos moment you know it's now become like Tori Amosness has become its own vein its own sort of subgenre that artists can tap into and out of <laughs> I am a mother's child I love you too feel you now and then slow like pseudo ephedrine when you see me will you say i've changed well when you go back and listen to this record now when you put boys of palais on 22 years after it first came out what is the experience like now for you to listen to it you know at this stage in your life as opposed to what it was like back in the day when you first discovered it I think for me now, at the time, it felt like a door that was opening up. It really did. I think my first favorite song was Muhammad, My Friend, because I was a very Catholic child at the time. And she was talking about how, like, maybe Jesus was a woman. And I was very scandalized and, you know, just saying it all the time where my parents couldn't hear me. Um, but at the time, that's what it felt like. It felt like maybe this is a version of who I could be one day. Maybe this is a realm of adulthood that I could step into one day. I'm now older than she was when she made that album. And I think I see it more with a level of appreciation for its craft. I don't necessarily need Tori Amos to be my friend anymore the way I did when I was a kid, if that makes sense. I can see her as an artist. I can recognize that there is almost nothing that I listen to that often as a adolescent that I can still put on today and just love every song on that record. It's opened up for me a lot more as a person who has experienced loss and has experienced love and these 
problems that she was talking about. It's a really impenetrable album, and she frontloads that. Horses is this very meandering, strange song about needing to get away from someone's demons and needing to ride your horse somewhere, but they can't give commands to their armies. Like it's it's one of those Troy Amos lyrics that doesn't make any sense. And now when I put it on, I'm like, oh God, yeah, I broke up with that guy in February. And all I did was go home to my parents' house and walk around in a snowstorm listening to horses. <laughs> so now that that's in the record. It's sort of like a file cabinet where I can tuck different things that have happened to me over my life because it's grown with me a lot and it keeps opening up new doors and new little pockets that I never really thought about before. And so I'm happy with it. It's a big, weird, complicated album, but that means I was able to work on figuring it out for like over 20 years of my life. Well, Sadie, thanks so much for talking to me today about your favorite album. Well, thank you so much for having me. All the dust I have took my lover off the show. Your apocalypse was found for a girl who couldn't choose between a shower of a bath. And I thought I wouldn't have to be with you. that's it for another episode of my favorite album thanks for listening i've been jeremy dillon you can follow me at mr jeremy dillon like our facebook page at facebook.com slash my favorite album subscribe on itunes and if you dig the show please leave a review thanks again for listening and see you next time Thought we both could use a friend